So I think it's helpful um, as we look at Good Friday and look at the crucifixion, if maybe, especially from this text, if we can kind of set the stage. I know we know this is when Jesus died, um, but how this all happened, why is it happening? I think if we set the stage, it will be very helpful for you, and I think it will give us a good understanding of what is happening in Luke 23. So first, the greatest drama of all time is about to take place. So this is the most important Friday of the, of the history of the world. Um, God has created, if you think about this, he's shaped, he's governed everything, uh, all people, all things, um, all circumstances, literally for this day. This is the day, right? Nothing could go wrong. So God was orchestrating everything for this day. This is the most important Friday of the world. If the world was a stage, this would be the most, this would be the climax of the drama, and this is God's drama. So let's examine what's happening before we read Matthew, or Luke 23, 4. So Jesus has just been betrayed. He's been arrested. Uh, he stood false trial to the Jewish leaders. So if you remember when he was arrested in the garden, they brought him to a trial. And I used to work at a courthouse. Those are pretty serious trials. There were actually witnesses and evidence, these things. Uh, the trial that Jesus went to, it was what you'd call kangaroo court, right? It was a joke. Um, at his trial, they attempted to pin him down on the charge of blasphemy, which, according to the book of Leviticus, deserves the death penalty. So to make any blasphemous claims automatically deserves death. So why didn't the Jews just kill him there? Why do you think that is? Well, first, Jesus was not committing blasphemy because he was and is God. He is very God of very God. We sing on Christmas time, word of the Father. He's the only begotten, the eternal Son. So first of all, Jesus is not committing blasphemy. Second of all, um, in Luke's account, Jesus says that he is also the Son of Man, the Son of God. So it's very clear that he is God, but why didn't the Jews destroy him then? Think of who the Jews are under. So you have Roman-occupied territory, so the Romans are in charge of the Jewish world, right? They're the rulers of the Jews. And because of that, they did not entrust the Jews to have the power of the death penalty, which probably makes sense. If there was one ruling authority saying, here's our rules, but under that, there's another party says, but we have our own rules that don't agree with yours. If that were to happen, there'd be chaos, right? Obviously so. So the Romans, they, they do not give... The Jews, the power of the death penalty according to their law, according to, according to the scriptures. So what needs to happen? Well, Jesus has to be found guilty of a penalty that the Romans would say, let's dish it out. So how do you do that? Well, the Roman penalty for death, as you probably know, is crucifixion. Uh, normally reserved for serious offenses. One of the main reasons that the Romans used a cross, we think, uh, is primarily for the crime of sedition, which is a crime against the state, right? So any, any attempt to usurp Caesar's rule or to disband the government or to rule, have like a, a coup going, is automatic death penalty. They don't, they don't like that. They don't let it fly. So Rome should respond with power. Why would you want to do that? To set an example. If you want to try to mess with the Romans, you'll get put on a tree, Right? And we know there are stories of the Roman road, which is miles long, where there would be thousands of people just crucified along the road for miles to scare people, to remind you that you do not mess with the Romans. Uh, 
crucifying a person on a cross was just a regular Tuesday or a Thursday or a Monday for the Romans is just their job. Hence, the brutality of the cross was a means of fear and power that the government used. In John 19, we're given a full detail for why Pilate acted this way. If you read even just about who Pilate is, which we're going to talk about a little bit, Pilate was a coward. Uh, he delivered Jesus over to be crucified in John 19 um, before he uh, he chooses a, a first, maybe, maybe I shouldn't hand him over. I don't see anything wrong in this man. And the crowd accuses him of being no friend of Caesar because as we just read here in Luke, Jesus is calling himself a king, right? And who is the king of Rome technically? Will it be Caesar? So if you look at what the Jews are trying to do is they are saying, if Jesus is calling himself a king, that means he's saying he's in charge of Caesar. You work for Caesar, right? Kill him. Why would you want there to be conflict? Do you see what the Jews are trying? Do you see what's happening? What must happen for Jesus to be put to death? Jesus preached about the kingdom of God as if he is a king. He said his kingdom was not of this world and claimed to be the Messiah. The Jews understood this, that he was claiming to be God's king. So therefore, he was called the king of the Jews in a mocking sense. And as a way for the Jews to punish the death penalty, again, that is call him a king so that Pilate have a reason to kill him. So who are these people that are in this text? Look at verse 4 of Luke 23. Then Pilate said to the chief priests. I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on. So first, who is Pilate? Uh, Pilate is the fifth governor of Judea under Tiberius Caesar. We learned that from Luke chapter 3. Uh, he's known for a couple blunders in his life and a couple atrocities. One of them is, is in Luke chapter 13. Uh, we don't have any other record besides this. What happened was uh, Pilate was angry, and instead of letting the Jews sacrifice, doing their animal sacrifice in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, we have an account that Jesus says Pilate got angry, he killed a bunch of Jews, and mixed their blood with the blood offering. So that's pretty heinous. Uh, it's mockery, it is cruel, and it is wicked. Uh, we have outside sources saying that Pilate also did some other wicked things. Uh, he once stole some uh, treasury from the temple of the Jews, in order to pay for a new aqueduct in Jerusalem. You don't have enough money for it? Just steal. Why not? Uh, there was a huge riot. Pilate uh, knew this was going to happen, so he sent disguised military into the crowds to act like they were part of the riot. When the riot broke out, he gave a signal, and all of his soldiers just beat the living heck out of all these people, and the riot ceased. So Pilate isn't exactly a guy that we would like to get to know. Apart from the four Gospels, he's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in 1 Timothy, and his name also comes up in some historic confessions called the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So Pilate, to sum it up, was a coward. Uh, he is responsible for having Jesus killed. Uh, Jesus looked him right in the eyes, and Pilate still said, eh, you guys can kill him, it's fine. This was a dreadful sin, uh, driven by the fear of man. He wanted to please the people, so he said, you know what? I'll give him up. It's a heinous thing. Second, who were the chief priests? So look at this again. Then Pilate said to the chief priests, likely either the high priests who offered the sacrifice in the most holy place, which means they had the highest role in the temple, right? So if you think you know Bible drills pretty well, they could smoke it 10 times out of 10, right? They knew their word. They knew who the Messiah was going to, what he was supposed to look like. They knew 
The text you have in the Old Testament, they had it, right? They knew their word. So they're either the main high priest in the temple who offered the sacrifice, or they were under the high priest and they were kind of doing various things in the temple. We're not exactly sure. They seem to be used in, in different ways to uh, say the same thing. So either they're the high priest or they are high priests uh, that worked in the temple. Meaning these men, like I said, unlike Pilate, they knew the scriptures. They had the Old Testament. They knew Psalm chapter 2. They knew Psalm 110. They knew 2 Samuel 7. They knew Micah 5, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 53. We go on and on and on. They have no excuse for what they are doing. But due to their hardness of heart and suppressing the truth, they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. Uh, what a tragedy to be so close to Christ. I mean, these people grew up in, quote-unquote, church in the Jewish life. They could look them right in the eye and just, no. Isn't that a tragedy? They knew their Bibles better than we, yet they were dead in their sins. They were dead in their hearts. They were hardened. They were blind to the glory of Christ. Lastly, who were the crowds? Very briefly here, who do you think crowds are? Crowd of people. Good answer. Uh, we know that in the Gospels, we, we think of, when you think of crowds, what, you, what do you think of? Well, you probably think of Jesus feeding the 4,000 multitudes. Maybe you think of him feeding the 5,000 on another occasion. Uh, we read in account after account in all the Gospels that the crowds followed Jesus. And what did Jesus do to them every single time? He had compassion. He healed diseases. He healed the blind. He healed lepers. Who had he healed those who had paralysis. He cast out demons. I mean, there is, if you just read through your gospel, account after account, or just says many, multitudes, the crowds. I mean, he just, they're all over the place. The crowds flocked to Jesus, however, not for who he was, but for what he offered. Uh, in John chapter 6, after just being fed, the, the, these crowds followed Jesus, and Jesus confronts him and says, are you coming to me because you want me or because you want another sandwich? And of course, the answer is they want another sandwich. They were thankful for his, for his healing. They were happy to be fed by him. They enjoyed the benefits of Christ. They even on Palm Sunday laid down their branches and said, hey, it's the Messiah. Then only a few short days later, they would be shouting from the crowd to crucify him. So again, the crowd sought not Jesus as a person, but what he could offer they did not love him. They loved the idea of him. Jesus was useful. They could have their own life and add Jesus on the side and be happy. Now let's, let's look at the text of Luke 23, 4. Uh, this is what we're, I just have two points in the sermon. The first one is his pronouncement. So this is Jesus' pronouncement. Uh, Pilate, like a broken clock, is right at least twice. It looks like he gets one thing right. He says that Jesus has no guilt in this man. Uh, Pilate probably has no idea that what he just said is probably one of the most profound statements in all the world. He can look at Christ and say, oh, there's no guilt in him. He got it right accidentally. Uh, Jesus was and is perfect. In a life of three decades, our Lord never fell short in holiness one time. I want you to think about this with me. What does that look like? Jesus never entertained an impure thought. He never acted with mixed motives. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, 24-7, every single day. 
He always honored his father and mother. He never looked with lust. He never uttered a sin in sinful anger. He never stole, never lied, never coveted it. Coveted? Are you saying that? Never. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. Isn't that just stunning? Not one error, not one. Jesus himself in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 says that he is sinless. We have the same thing all over the Bible. I will read you just a couple. Hebrews chapter 7 says that he was holy, innocent, and unstained. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus knew no sin. 1 John 3.5 says in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. And as Hebrews 4 rightly reminds us, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. The Bible is just unanimous. He was sinless. He was perfect. He truly is God and he truly is man. Jesus had to battle temptation just like you do, but he was always successful. He squared off with our greatest enemy, the devil, and won. He underwent a baptism of repentance by John the Baptist, but not for himself. He did it because he said this. It was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' life was fulfilling all righteousness, all of God's law. He kept God's law perfectly. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. His life was perfect. It was unblemished, a credit, a righteousness Jesus earned. He racked up perfect credit, you could say. The righteousness of God because he is God, and yet he is man. And this is why the condescension of Jesus as God, so why Jesus, who was God, becoming a person is so stunning. That he would willingly leave and become a man and suffer and die. And that is a love that should shatter our loves for all these lesser things, is it not? He willingly submitted, willingly was suffered, volunteered his life, was spit upon, betrayed. All of this was an act of the brightest love in a dark, dark moment. Uh, it's been said in, in the scriptures that no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever acted like this man. Uh, Jesus was not a mere prophet or a teacher. He was the Christ. And in his living, he was the Lamb of God. All of this matters because of your eternity. Are you aware of that? Your eternity is at stake. If Jesus were to err in any way, we are going to hell. It's just it. He lived every moment for God's glory. And the question we must ask ourselves is, do we live for the same glory? Perhaps the best way to sum up Jesus' life was this. God himself, God the Father, speaks from heaven about Jesus' life. Do you, remember, do you remember what he says? In Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3, we have these words. The Father speaks from heaven. Jesus is baptized. He speaks. And what does he say about Jesus' life? With you, I am well pleased. There's only one life ever lived that pleased God. And it was Jesus. He brought his father perfect joy and approval. He is the Holy One of God, the beautiful Christ. So look at Christ, who has no guilt, but only total and complete righteousness.
And now I want us to think about first his pronouncement and now our pronouncement. Unlike Jesus, we do not have a righteous life. God doesn't have to audibly announce from the heavens about our livelihood, does he? We don't have to be told from heaven how we are. We know how we are. God speaks to us actually in his word. I won't give you very many texts. I will just give you one that should do the trick. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 simply says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. So what is the standard that we have to keep, that we have to achieve? Full righteousness. We have to, we have, we have to attain to perfection. But all of us fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard, is the glory of God, right? That's, that's, it's, that's perfection. And falling short is a very gentle way of saying you're not even close. Our pronouncement, so this sinful... A ruler named Pilate can give an, an accurate pronouncement. Uh, God, who is perfect, if he were to look at us and give you pronouncement right now, this would be your pronouncement. I find guilt in you. He finds guilt in me. We have sinned in word, in deed, in thought, and desire. We sin with others or we sin by ourselves. We sin at work. We sin at home with friends, with family. All of us fall short in every way. It does not take long to realize that we are sinners. My son is not even four, and I have, I have never told him or taught him how to lie. He just does and knows how. This, this is the easiest proven doctrine that we are fallen. <laughs> it needs no proof. Just a simple gaze upon the Ten Commandments will reveal to us that that is just the beginning of our crimes. Friends, do you consider it grace to know that God lovingly reveals to you your sinful condition? Isn't that kind of God to even tell you that you are sick? You know you are bad. You need a physician. A cruel doctor would keep it from you, but a good physician reveals it to you. We are unclean. There is condemnation and there is hell reserved for people just like us. And we deserve it. But the good of Good Friday is that Jesus Christ came to switch verdicts with you. To switch pronouncements. Jesus himself said that he did not come to call the righteous. Not meaning that there are people who are righteous, but those who think, you know what, I'm alright. I'm not that bad. When we think that way, Jesus did not come. For those who think that way. Instead, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but for sinners to repentance. It is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, would become man to bear man's curse. And as God, he would take the wrath of God. And unlike Pilate, friends, we have a perfect judge who judges justly and righteously. And isn't it good news that God judges us? not on the basis of us. You're not judged on you if you are a Christian. You are being judged on the merits and the work of another, namely Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, there's ever a verse I think you should memorize. That would be the one. For he who knew no sin became sin 
so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes the blame for me. He is sentenced for my guilt. He is counted as though he did nothing righteous and nothing good. He was treated on the cross in the place of ruined sinners like myself, so that by faith I would receive his pronouncement. This has been called the great exchange for a good reason. This is a great exchange. By his suffering and death on the cross, Jesus endured God's wrath so that I could receive God's pleasure. You guys know Romans 8.1. I know you do. There is therefore now how much condemnation? None. There's no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus was already condemned for you, in your place, as if he was you. So as you live the Christian life, and when you sin, how should you respond when you sin? There's no condemnation for this sin. It's already been paid for. So what should you do? Confess it and throw it on Christ. Father, I fell short again. Would you please forgive me? And you know what? Yes. Because Jesus died for your past, present, and your future sins. So now what? Now, how should we think about this? There's no greater resting place. There's no better rock to stand on before God. We are not merely pardoned criminals. I want to say that again. We're not just forgiven bad people. In Christ, you are adopted sons and daughters. You inherit heaven. You inherit Christ. He is your joy. He is your crown. He is your treasure. And he is your God. Friends, God's acceptance of you is no longer based on you. You do not need to identify with your sins or your past sins of your youth or your sinfulness now. You identify with the righteousness of God in Christ. Uh, traditionally, when people get married, I think this is, this is the reason, when you get married, the wife takes the name of the husband. Do you know why that is? I'll tell you why. Because this is a symbol to show I'm going to identify with my head, with my husband. I'm no, the old me's dead. This name's gone. I want to identify with him. Friends, that's the gospel. You identify with Christ. And you know what? He identifies with you. You don't have to look at your achievements in life anymore or your status or your pay or your approval by others and find your identity in that. Not only is looking to those things both crushing and vain and hollow, but instead you can identify with Christ because he identifies with you and with zero shame. Uh, I have family members who I think, man, yeah, that's, that's my cousin or that's my uncle. You guys have those weird uncles probably, right? Maybe by grace you are that weird uncle. And you think, oh, we got to, he's part of our family. And you shamefully think, yeah, that's him. Jesus will never do that to you. He doesn't look at you and say, oh yeah, there's Gail again. Good thing he came. He never does that because there's no condemnation. There's no more sin in you. Isn't that glorious? You no longer, have to, you no longer now have to question God's love for you in suffering and in pain. Why not? He offered up his son to you in suffering and pain. Why do you doubt? His love goes deeper. When you doubt, what should you do? You should flee to Christ's cross. Confess your sins and guilt daily. He bore them all. God has removed your guilt. 
So what should you do? Now walk in the joy of obedience. You can please God now from a heart of thankfulness, not to earn God's favor. It's already been earned for you. On your worst day as a Christian, does God's love for you, does your righteousness change? Not a bit. On your best day, let's say you've been reading your Bible for weeks in a row. Does God love you more on that day than he does on the day where you've not read it in two days? It's unchanging. Isn't that astounding? So therefore, you should obey out of love, out of gratitude. Jesus warns you about our sin in love because he warns you that there is no life or joy outside of Christ. So why should I have longings for sin? Lord, help us increase our love for you. As we close, I want to close with one sentence. Look at Luke 23, 4. Behold your new pronouncement in Christ, Christian. With you I am well pleased, and God finds no guilt in you. Let's pray.